Hi, this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people. This is Ben. This is A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for joining me. Hope you're doing all right. How's it going? How's your 2022 going so far? What are we, about uh, 19 days in? This is Wednesday morning, so um, I'm on the back foot this time because uh, I should have recorded this intro by now. And I've had about six attempts so far and I just end up kind of talking gibberish, frankly, which uh, I don't think is acceptable uh, on a top-notch podcast such as this. So let's try again. What have I got to tell you? I've got Robert Gumpert on the podcast this morning. So um, excited to bring you a chat with Robert and I will introduce him properly in a minute. I think I'm going to have some new sponsors to bring you in the coming weeks, which is very good news. And I'm going to be looking for all kinds of uh, additional sponsorship this year. So that's going to be a good thing. Got to get on the monetization tip because otherwise it all gets a bit silly. And the amount of time and energy that I have to put into this uh, becomes frankly onerous if I cannot in some way find a way to uh, have some financial compensation for that time and energy. So please do sign up as a member. That's one fantastic way in which you can help. If I could uh, increase my membership numbers this year, it would be a bit of a game changer. Go to pod.fan and sign up as a subscriber or member of this podcast. It's £5 a month. You will not only be supporting the ongoing production of this show, but you will be also uh, gaining access to exclusive member-only content, a special fortnightly subscriber-only edition of this podcast, which features all kinds of bonus material unavailable to everyone else. So do that. Uh, sponsor this week is, of course, Charcoal Book Club. And um, I will bring you a new Charcoal Book Club ad read at some point in the next few weeks. But um, for now, I'm just going to make it up as I go along because I can't read the same one again. You know about the Charcoal Book Club. Charcoal Book Club is a fantastic monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. If your New Year's resolution for 2022 is to start building your photo book collection, this is a great way of doing it. Charcoal will basically curate and send you uh, 12 books a year, one a month, and they will pick and you will get what they send. And it's a fantastic magical mystery tour of photo books. So um, they know what they're doing. They always pick something interesting. And you very often come across something that you wouldn't otherwise have come across. That's the great joy of it. Uh, they will curate your selection. It's charcoalbookclub.com is the email address. For instance, recently, the book of the month, because there's always a book of the month. Sabia Chimen, Hafiz is the book of the month and Sabia was of course on the podcast fairly recently last year well of course it was last year it's only just this year but um, go and check out the chat I had with Sabia if you want to hear more about that project have his the book is absolutely beautiful published of course by Red Hook Editions uh, Jason Eskenazi her husband who runs Red Hook and they did a fantastic job between them and the designers on the cover oh my god it's such a amazing piece of artwork and uh, this beautiful marbled end papers and all kinds of stuff so have a look at that book uh that was last month's book of the month 
There's free shipping to USA, Canada and the UK. I can't remember all the details. It doesn't matter. You get all kinds of benefits and you can find out what they are at charcoalbookclub.com. So now uh, let me introduce Robert Gumpert. Robert is a California-based photographer with extensive international experience documenting social issues and institutions, including service and industrial work, jails and the criminal justice system, and emergency rooms and paramedics. His collaborative Take a Picture, Tell a Story project in the San Francisco County Jails exchanges inmates' portraits for their stories. He's also created abstract art from the textures and colours of the bridges, walls, highway supports and fallen leaves of London and San Francisco. And his forthcoming book, Division Street, which explores the homelessness crisis and the vast disparity between the haves and have-nots in San Francisco, his hometown, will be released by Darry Lewis Publishing early in 2022. That's very soon. That's now. I think February is when it's going to be out in the UK and March in the USA. So to quote from a piece of text that appears on the homepage of Bob's new website, courtesy of yours truly... San Francisco's aptly named Division Street, which dead ends in the city's famous tech development district, serves as a metaphor for the disparity between the wealthy few and the expendable many, both in the USA and the wider world. The project is a story of lives lived on hard streets amid staggering wealth and empty promises, told through photographs, interviews, newspaper headlines, overheard street conversations, found text and first-person narratives, a long way from the beautiful city by the bay conjured up in the popular imagination. So... You will hear Bob talk uh, a lot about that project and others. Uh, he basically got in touch with me because he listened to the podcast and he wanted me to sort the website out for him, which we have now done at robertgumpert.com. But, of course, in the process of getting to know his work and going through his images in the process of building that website, it suddenly occurred to me that um, he should come on and have a chat. And obviously I knew the book was coming out, so it seemed like perfect timing. So without further ado... Please do enjoy this chat I had with the brilliant Robert Gumpert. Just to give you a bit of context, uh, we recorded this at the end of last year sometime. And the thing that we kicked off talking about was the very recent, at that moment, result of the infamous Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And so that is what we uh, are talking about right at the beginning of the conversation here. I'd like to, you know, actually capture this. Um, uh, it's nice to um, kick off with a topical discussion. <sighs> what do you say? Ha- what's the media response at the moment? That's a horribly broad-ranging and vague question, but I'll, you can take it however you like. Uh, well, I can't really say because uh, I have kind of got boycotted the news in the last few days. <laughs> Mm. Uh, I think it really depends on where you're listening or reading. I mean, the media isn't that different from the country. It's pretty divided. Mm. Uh, That's how it feels, yeah. You know, that it's a reflection of this division, which is a word we'll come back to, no doubt. But um, lines have been drawn, and um, it's very... Yeah, what's the word? You know, it's a very extreme polarity. And um, as usual, the sane people in the middle (laughs) of the argument, and that's, you know, I'm making a judgment there, but I would stand by at any time. Most of the sanity is is occupying that that centre ground, but no one's listening to that. Does that make sense to you? 
yeah, there's no eyeballs or sales in the middle ground. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, I just read that the Proud Boys were on being charged in D.C. for the 6th. Mm. I have now have floated the idea that they were there uh, to protect the peaceful demonstrators. Right. And which is a variant on what Rittenhouse did, mm. his lawyers did. You know, I mean, I'm not surprised by the verdict. Mm. It was pretty clear that the prosecution was having difficulty and the judge was the judge. I don't know what the hell to say about it. Mm. And the defense was pretty clear on what it what on on its message, and the criminal justice system is really much more about who who tells the most plausible or um, acceptable story to the jury. Mm-hmm. It's not really you know so whatever he did in terms of deciding to come to Kenosha with a gun with a loaded gun. Uh, run around after three days of rioting, running running around into the crowd. It's irrelevant. His lawyers were good storytellers. Yeah. And the uh, narrative was set. Mm. And the judge played along with it. Yeah. I mean, the judge for sure did not help the prosecution's uh, case. That uh, is, is safe to say. I think his biases were fairly clear. But um, at the same time, you'd think that the prosecution um, would have had a pretty clear-cut case. I mean, this kid... I mean, obviously, you know, here I am sitting in in the UK, and we all look at America with dismay, you know, uh, in the rest of the world, as do, you know, you in America for the most part. But, you know, the idea that an 18-year-old kid can take a semi-automatic assault rifle into the streets and sort of, you know, wander about with it, it is just nothing short of insanity. And anyone who doesn't think that, you know, is themselves operating with a very weird um, kind of map of, of what, you know, a, a, a kind of desirable and normal world should look like. But, um, but you know, that, and that's before he's even pulled the, tri- pulled the trigger. But um, the well, fact you got to remember that, yeah. that he could because he's white. A black male team or a Latino male team running around with a salt rifle in the middle of a riot? Yeah, wouldn't you know, last he'd a be second. Dead. There wouldn't have been a trial. He'd be dead mm. by now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's probably um, a fairly uh, an uncontroversial um, um, comment to make. I, I think um, most people would probably agree with that, even those you know uh, on the right side of, of things. You know, on the I mean, on the on the right of the political spectrum, and when push comes to shove, will probably admit that that's that's the truth. Um, this yeah, this kid was white and um, is white, and um, that's a that's a very different thing in in the US and possibly elsewhere. But yeah, it's kind of depressing. Um, There's not much to say. I mean, you <laughs> the know, silence. The, the silence the, speaks the, volumes. The criminal justice system in America, and I, I suspect most places. Justice isn't really part of the equation. 
It's how it's the story you tell and the story that that the three sides, because it's the judge, the defense and the prosecution. And it's so it's a story that people tell. And it's a story that those three sides manage to agree on in -hmm. terms of what will be allowed, what won't be allowed, who can be called, how they can be questioned, uh, what's admissible, what's not. And once you know, and at the end of the day, that's then you fight on those on on that playing field, and usually the prosecution has the advantage, mm. but clearly not all the time. Yeah, and it feels like you know, as with a lot of other things, there isn't a lot of room for nuance, <laughs> you know, or sophistication in the arguments. I mean, the jury system, I guess, is flawed to say the least um no one's ever come up with a better option so far but you know the whole kind of you know 12 good people and all that but um you know they have to sit and listen to some some fairly complex legal arguments sometimes and i think you know the simpler the argument the more chance there is of you selling it to the jury i think in this case the defense probably understood that in a way that the prosecution didn't? I don't know. I mean, it's been a long time since I spent any any extended periods in courtrooms. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But when I did, uh, it was an eye-opener. Mm. You know, I mean, it was, it was shocking to me how it worked. Well, we can talk more about the legal um, justice system because it's been something that you know, you've spent a lot of your career preoccupied with and um, focusing on. And I'd love to hear more about sort of how that became one of your sort of abiding interests, really, um, photographically, as a, as, a, as a photographer and a, and, a, and a journalist. And maybe even you see yourself as an activist on some level. Certainly you're an advocate for, for change, you know, for, for improvements to um, society. Uh, I think you come with that tradition uh, as a photographer behind you. I thought we could probably should start, though, with your with your Division Street project because you've got a book forthcoming, going to be out at the beginning of next year. Um, it's called Division Street, published by Darry Lewis. So I thought, let's start with that, and maybe you could introduce it for the listeners. What is the project about? Living in a town of a lot of wealth with no money. You know, and that town a lot of resources when you have none. And nobody really wants to cope with the problem. They just kind of want to make, make it go away. Mm. The town in question being San Francisco. Are you, are you a, a native to that part of, of the States or is it just where you've ended up? How long have you lived there for? 35 years. Okay. Or something like that. I'm from L.A. Oh, you're from L.A. Okay, so you're a California man, but you've, uh, you've ended up up there. Yeah, so you've been there a long time. So you've seen a lot of changes firsthand, really dramatic changes to the sort of social landscape. And that's partly what you, I guess what you're exploring here. Where is Division Street and can you kind of characterize it? Because, you know, when I, I've not been to I've been to California, but mostly the south. I've never been north of L.A. I've been sort of south of there. I've never been to San Francisco. It's the place that, you know, we think about as 
one of the most desirable cities in, in the US to live in, if you can afford to. A place where that's kind of synonymous with Silicon Valley and the, and the whole kind of tech biz. But beyond that, and, and people talk about the Bay Area. I was like, what is this Bay Area? You know, like, I know it's, I know, I've looked on a map, you know, I'm not that stupid, but I'm still fascinated by the geography of the place. Maybe you can sort of set it up for me a little bit and uh, explain, you know, where things are situated. Like, is the, you know, are the kind of deprived areas and the affluent areas intermingled or are they very separate? In San Francisco, it's more like New York, where it can be very intermingled. I think I, when we mean intermingled, we're kind of saying this block would be one class and the next block might be another. Yeah, it that's isn't like I mean. on the same block. Uh, sure, although, but, but they're, they're not, there's not like, yeah, it's not kind of, it's not like ghettoized into that part of the city is where like the rich LA. live. It's not like LA. Right, right. Where yeah. people were corralled, basically. Mm. Or kettles, I think, is the, the police term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kettles. Uh, yeah. And the freeways were used to separate them. Mm. So, uh, but San Francisco has neighborhoods, very distinct neighborhoods. And some of those neighborhoods were traditionally settling grounds for new arrivals, whether they were from the other side of the country or from another country. So, like, the mission, uh, which is between where I live and the Pacific Ocean, uh, is a traditional settling site for new immigrants. So that wasn't always Latinos or Mexicans. At one point it was Italians and Irish. So there's still like an there's still an Italian restaurant in the mission um, where I don't, I haven't been to this place in, I don't know, 30 years, but it used to be, they would sing opera in it. Mm. Uh, there was an Italian bakery. Uh, but the mission now is primarily Latina and, and folks who are working on minimum wage or, or, well, in, in San Francisco, it's a living wage, mm. which is kind of odd because if you earn the living wage that's settled in the city, you can't afford any rent. So I don't know. I'm <laughs> not entirely certain how living wage it is, but. Uh, Doesn't Zuckerberg live there somewhere? Well, I have no idea where Zuckerberg lives. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought I came across. He's never, he's never invited me over. Yeah, you haven't. Yeah, you don't like bump into him strolling down Division Street. But no, um, but the hospital down that hospital two blocks away is named after him. So. Right. Oh, yeah, because he probably put a lot of money into it. No, I think I thought I came across some tidbit uh, in in the course of my 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 research into you know your your project. But Division Street itself, what a fantastically you know, apt name it has. It couldn't, you couldn't, you know, want for more than that if you were, you know, looking for a metaphor, as it were, for that um, disparity. But um, that's somewhere sort of downtown. Is it in the, in the center there? Where's, where's Division Street? It's uh, east of downtown, east and south. I think it's better to kind of give it a background first. So yeah, please do. When I, 
when uh, the Super Bowl came to San Francisco, which I think was 2016, maybe, the town was had a lot of homeless. Super Bowl brings in a lot of tourists. City city officials don't want a lot of tourists seeing a lot of homeless. So the police went around and told the homeless they had to move. And they said, a great place for you is on Division Street. Division Street is actually only about four blocks long. Okay. So Division Street dead ends on the east in the Soma area south of Market, which is also turns out to be the capital of uh, new investments and startups and mm. all of that stuff. Right. Because it's a formerly industrial area. It's where a lot of the warehouses were for all the material that came off ships when San Francisco had a war, had a big working port. Mm-mm. So all of those got converted, or now they're all being torn down in expensive housing buildings. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to sort of get a sense of it because we want to talk about this place and, and um, you know, it's the sort of centre of this this entire story that you're engaged in, in working on. And so I thought it might, might be nice to get a bit of a kind of sense of it. And and I think, you know, it's quite poignant that, like you say, dead, if we started dead ends, that's good in itself <laughs> from the narrative point of view. But also that, you know, it is this area which is synonymous with the tech, business and um uh, i read um with interest the rebecca solnit essay that that was written um to accompany uh, the story that that um harper's magazine published your story the the photo essay and she was talking about how you know essentially to put it in a nutshell the tech boom created an influx of highly paid individuals and that in turn kind of triggered or led to a housing crisis presumably because rents and that kind of thing went up so it's sort of the root cause or one of the root causes of this problem this kind of boom that's uh, that's synonymous with the place in terms of silicon valley yes i do think that that a lot of people making a lot of money came in and um there were several booms in this town around the internet. Homelessness in this town has been here as long as I've been here and longer, but it's boomed at the Mm. moment. And I think there's several reasons for that. One of which is Airbnb. Mm. You know, people make make much more money renting out their apartment on a short-term basis than they can for rent. So they found ways to get people out. Those people, and that also increased the value of a rental property. So when you were when you when you were expelled from your place, you couldn't afford to move someplace else. So that in the city, so there's that aspect of it. There's the aspect that that, that people came in in high-paying jobs with humongous bonuses, and frankly. In the first tech boom, especially, no concept of money. Mm. I mean, there was so much money that they had no concept of money. So a house that is opposite ours uh, in that first boom went on sale. The guy said, "I'm leaving. I can't. I, I can see the handwriting." 
So I'm going to sell the house. I see no need to advertise it. I'll just put signs up and put it a want ad for one weekend. And he went around, first he went around and he got a price. This is like 15 years ago. Uh, I think it was like $395,000, something like that. And he had an open house that weekend and the guy, people came in, people started giving him figures, bidding on it. And then he sold it. And he's, I said, but you sell it for? He said, well, I didn't take the highest bid because I knew no bank would lend money on a bid like that for this house. So I took like the third highest bid because the guy came in and said, I just got my bonus. It's $300,000. So I'll give you $300,000 in cash. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. people ran stop signs and stoplights in $80,000 Porsches. Remember, it's eight fifteen because if they crashed it, who cares? <laughs> you know, yeah. There's money. So mm. there's that aspect of it. This was a magnet for jobs, good paying jobs. Not just good paying, but I mean, tech companies would do your laundry for you. They'd feed you. They'd give you entertainment. And they'd transport you to and from work on a bus. Hmm. So lots and lots of people came. Prices went up. Housing became short. So housing then began to get built. So you have, it's all union built, which it should be. And uh, so the big condos started going up. Condos were expensive because the land is expensive because it's a peninsula and there's a limited amount of space to build. And affordable housing, whatever the hell that term means, was not included mm. because people wanted return on this big investment. And building costs were a lot because there's so much demand for workers, equipment, and supplies that everybody's paying a premium. Mm. I mean, there are, you go to building sites in San Francisco on these, on the condos or office buildings, and there are, there are RVs outside parked on the street. They're not homeless. They're construction workers who have come from God knows where with an RV because there's yeah. a ton of work. There's work, yeah. So, like, the other side of this equation, then, is, as you say, you know, the, the people that you've been focusing on, the have-nots, the people at the extreme sort of end of the poverty um, crisis because they don't, haven't got a, ha a home at all. So how, what was your way into the story? Was it the 2016 Super Bowl? Like, how did you come to follow this and, and pursue this as a, a project? So in 2014, I had a contract. I worked under contract for, doesn't matter, but I worked under contract for 10 years. And circumstances at the place that had me under contract changed. And I guess I was 67 years old. And I thought, this isn't why I was working here. I can't justify this. And I will kill myself if I'm here at 70. <laughs> so, and my, and my ability as a photographer was perfect for them, but it had, I didn't feel like I could see anymore. Mm. I could 
do their job they wanted at the level they wanted pretty much without thinking. But I couldn't take a picture to save my life <laughs> that I thought was decent. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I, I think we all have had this. You know, you, you, I shot, I don't know, I guess at the height of it, I must have been shooting five to 8,000 frames every two weeks or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was a lot of work. And it was all it was all the same. I was, was very it, good and very quick. This was editorial work. It was a strange mix of PR, educational, and editorial. Right. So uh, it it was a for it was a, it was part of a labor management partnership, Mm-mm. and they used it in. They had an insatiable appetite. Is all I can say. So I stopped. I'm interested. Yeah. Let me let me pause you though. But I'm interested in what you said. So you think that you turn into a kind of automaton in a way that you were just you were shooting without any passion, without any sort of personal. I kind think of, that happens to all of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and, think it and, happens. One of the things I've, I, I'm going to. I'm sorry. I attended. No, but no. Do you remember the day in the life books? Uh no. No. Okay. So you're probably not that old. So. The Day in the Life books were started out here by Rick Smola. Mm. He had this idea that if I can, I can get money from corporations and I can hire a hundred photographers and send them out to do whatever the fuck they want someplace. So it would be like the, the first one was the Day in the Life of Australia. Mm. And because there's no assignment involved, there's just Hey, you got a camera. I know your work. I like you. Here's here's a here's five hundred bucks and your expenses. And you know how often? No limit on film. Go out and shoot whatever the hell you want at this place. And I thought, and and people will they'll do this amazing work. All the work came back looking exactly like it was shot for Time Magazine, Newsweek, whoever they were shooting for. Mm-mm. They could not escape the way they saw. So, so you saw that in yourself, that, that tendency, as it were. You had identified that somehow and uh, yeah. didn't want to carry on down that road. No, I hated it. And but, the reasons for doing it no longer existed. I mean, the money did. but but So I needed, I just wasn't what I got in the business for. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean... At, at all. So I quit and I um, didn't know what to do. All I knew is I had to relearn how to shoot. So I put a camera on my shoulder and I walked, I, I walked out the door and I just walked all around and with no idea what I was going to do. And one of the things, if you do that in San Francisco, everywhere you go, there's homes. And money. And so even somebody as kind of slow to suss things out as I am, eventually, you know, after about a year, thought, I know there's a story here. Mm-mm. And I had been shooting the whole time. So, you know, I began to kind of re- reconnect with the way I'd like to look. 
I, I like to shoot. And then I actually went to London uh, in uh, January of, I guess, 2016. And when I came back, uh, I had already decided I was going to look at homeless, at the homeless situation. When I came back, uh, everything was filled with the news that the Super Bowl was coming and the city had been moving homeless to Division Street, which is 12, 13 blocks from me. Mm. And so I thought, oh, great. I walked down and it was like a scrub. There were so many journalists. Oh, God, yeah. You know, I mean, it was like 50, 60, 70 of us every day. It got to the point where a friend of mine was doing a podcast and she interviewed a homeless person in their tent. She finished the interview and she was packing up her equipment and the homeless person said, don't you need to get some actuality? Would you <laughs> Everybody else gets actuality. Would you like me to close the zipper and open the zipper? But at that point, I was still, I was taking pictures and I was, I tried not to get in those situations. But so I was kind of walking around and at some point I looked up and I thought the name of this street is Division Street. <laughs> this can't possibly be true. And yeah. Then I, and it was, and then I looked around and I thought, why is nobody else picked up on this? And I'm telling you, nobody else picked up on it. That wow. This was like, this could not possibly be any more direct. So I started taking pictures. Mm. And, you know, it's not just on Division Street, but, but the, difference the way I sold it to Harper's was that yeah. you have Division Street on the one end, you have... All the high-tech startups getting millions and millions of dollars for stuff which nobody knows what they're doing. I mean, and half of them aren't going to ever make a profit. Mm. And then you have along within a half a block, you have people living in tents, tents. rough, in constructed, in constructed uh, shelter, whatever. Mm. The, the difference seems to be between what you're doing and, and those other journalists that you were sort of in this kind of bum fight with, you know, um, that I presume they were responding, you know, the sort of to the kind of news cycle, this very sort of, you kind of fly in and fly out thing. It's, uh, it, you know, here today and tomorrow you're on to the next thing, but you're much more committed to the long game really. And as you know, evidenced by the fact that you, you kept working on it. And um, that seems to, to, to come across in the pictures because obviously these guys, you know, ha letting the journalists into their tent to, you know, to, to sit there and t tell their stories. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what's in it for them really? You know, there is, there is a level of exploitation to, 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 the, to the media and to the kind of daily news cycle. We, I think we're all aware of that. <coughs> but it feels like you gain the trust of these people in a way that, that, you know, no one else has. That's how it, looking at the, the work and reading the, the testimonies that you've sort of gathered, because the other side of it is that you're very, very interested and always has, have been in, in using text, first person testimony mainly to go with the images. So 
what was your journey with it? I mean, did you spend a lot of time getting to know some of these individuals or, or sort of at least letting them know that your intentions were, were pure in a way? Pure? <laughs> well, I think so, Interesting, yeah. Interesting choice of words. Uh, look, I mean, yeah, I work on long-term projects. Uh, they're all in San Francisco because I've never made enough money to go and spend that kind of time anywhere else. Mm. So it has to be here and preferably it has to be someplace within walking distance. Fortunately, San Francisco is a very walkable town. So what happened with the homeless folks is that at the same time I was starting that project or actually before, a little before, I was still in the jail. And to some extent, it's the same community. Mm. So I had spent, at that point, it would have been eight or nine years in the jail. Yeah. And I to would be clear, walk- you, weren't, uh, you weren't in jail. You were working on, um, on the... I would, on, go, on, I would go to the jail once a week yeah, or sometimes twice a week, sometimes three times a week, right. and I would sit down and talk to people. And usually it would involve photos and a, and a recording, but not always. Sometimes I would just sit down and talk. In any event, all these people... The folks in the jail, I mean, it's not easy. It's not that hard to get people's trust. I mean, even today, it's just if you do what you say you're going to do and you treat people like human beings, mm. you, people are going to trust you. And so, um, so I would walk home from the jail because it's just another five or six blocks from from uh, where I'm from Division Street. And I would run into homeless people and I'd be walking along and I'd go, Mr. Photographer. Mm, yeah. You know, and I, so we'd stop and I'd chat. I would say, do you want another set of photos? Not, I mean, you want reprints. It would be, because I give everybody photos. So I would say, do you want reprints? And they'd say, yes. So I'd say, okay, I'll be back tomorrow. And I would come back tomorrow with a set of prints. And if they were still around, I'd give them the prints. And so then if I went, so when I encountered people that I didn't know from the jail, chances are there might, there might be somebody who I knew from the jail in an encampment. And so they, I would ask somebody, you know, can I, can I take your picture and talk to you or whatever? And they would go, you know, who the hell are you? I don't talk to the press. And then this person from the jail would come over and go, oh, no, 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 you really need to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's just not, I mean, if you treat people with respect and you honor your commitments, and by that I think I would include you tell the truth mm. to them, uh, people trust you. I mean, at least that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh and, you know, given your, your set of questions, I, I thought about one of those questions. And, and I think that for me, it all stems from the fact that I screwed up on an assignment a long time ago and failed to meet deadline. Mm. Now, I don't think there's any greater sin in our business that somebody sends you someplace and you didn't make deadline. And I thought a lot about it. It's haunted me for a lot of years. 
But I also think that it has colored the way I, I react to people. So for me, the, when I take a picture of folks, it's like they've hired me to do their portrait. Mm. And I have made a commitment that I'm going to, if they're not there, you know, or if they don't meet their, I don't care whether they meet their end of it. I mean, they may be there tomorrow. They may not. I mean, it's, it's a pretty unstable lifestyle. Mm. So, but if I say I'm going to be back tomorrow around one o'clock, then I'm back tomorrow at one o'clock with the photos or to take photos. If they're there, they're there. If they're not, they're not. But at least you, you, know, you I'm, I, yeah. I got there and I'll try again. Yeah, you held up your end of the, of the bargain, as it were. So we, we haven't taken things in, in kind of chronological order because you talked about the prison and this was, a, this was something like you say you were already doing um, before the Division Street project even started. And um, that topic, um, as, as I said, you know, at the beginning is, is something you've been interested in, in a long, for a long time. And there seems to be some interesting kind of relationships between, you know, prison, the prison population and the homeless population. And I think this is also something that Rebecca Solnit referred to in her essay, in a sense that, you know, it's really all about these kind of vicious cycles. You've seen these things up close firsthand. And I was wondering what your kind of take on it was. Well, how did you first like get interested in prisons? When was the first time you stepped foot inside a prison and why were you there in terms of obviously as a photographer you were there but how did it all start for you well first off i'm an american and mm. we are obsessed with crime yeah yeah <laughs> i mean look at our tv shows <laughs> yeah yeah no absolutely <laughs> well what was our first uh our, our opening uh co- co- line of conversation was about exactly. recent but of course that well i mean Leonard, it's not surprising that we're we're sort of preoccupied with that but yeah um, you're right. Yes, there is an interesting crime. So, basically, it, it, the short story on this is that I started in labor, taking pictures of labor, for labor, um, for a number of reasons. I burned out, and I decided I would attempt to become a foreign correspondent. And so I did that for seven years. Hmm. And then circumstances were that I wasn't making a living and uh, I really needed to be more in the family. So I came, so I stopped traveling. And when I stopped traveling, uh, it was 94, something like that. Uh, I knew that I was going to get the assignments I was going to get were going to be things that I didn't really care about that much, mm. you know. Uh, and it, in fact, that was the way it turned out. And I did a lot of portraits and uh, I went to see people. I had no idea why I was being asked to take their picture. It was just some, basically somebody in England, in London, called me up and said, here's a name, here's a phone number. We need their phone. So I wanted, I needed to, I knew I needed something to keep me attached to photography. It wasn't, I mean, I just, 
I needed to be able to take the kind of pictures and the kind of stories that meant something to me. So um, I hit upon this idea of photographing homicide detectives, kind of a, a day in the life of a homicide detective versus uh, what it was on in popular media, hmm. popular TV or culture. I remember I came out of labor. So for me, I was interested in this from the point of view of the homicide detective as a worker. Hmm. What's that job like? And uh, so I asked a couple, a couple of friends, and, and one of them turned out to have a way in and work as the editor at uh, one of the alternative papers. And this team, homicide team, said yes. So I started, my friend got fired from the paper and didn't want to continue. And I went to the homicide guys and said, there's no outlet for this, but I would like to continue. It's on you. Uh, and can I stay? And they said yes. So I stayed for a year. Mm. And uh, at that point, I asked them if I could go to the cops, the street cops. And they said, sure, we'll help you do that. And they recommended a place. So I went and I spent a year with the street cops. And then, uh, again, this is all from the point of view of work, the job. Mm. Then I thought... I really should go to the jail, but I couldn't get in the jail. I couldn't find a way in. So I decided I wanted to do the public defender. So I went and I found a way into the public defender and I spent 18 months with the public defender, uh, 18 months primarily because court cases have a lot of stop and go in them as people it, people go on vacation or you don't like the judge or, you know, all kinds of different things. And at that point, near the end of that, I, re I remembered that one of the homicide detectives had said, if you want to get in the jail, I know somebody who will help. And I had asked so many people in so many positions if they would help. And they all said yes, and they never did. So I just, I finally just, I called this guy, Tony Camilleri, and said, Tony, you know, back in a couple of years ago, you said, he says, would you be willing to? And he said, yeah, sure. I didn't call him. I actually went to see him. And he said, no problem. And it's about a half an hour walk to my house. And I got home and there was, we had answering machines in those days. <laughs> and uh, on the answering machine was this guy I'd never heard of saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm a friend of Tony's. The uh, chief of staff for the for the uh, sheriff, uh, this is her name. This is her phone number. She's expecting your call. And I went and saw her, showed her the work, and she went into the sheriff, who was a very interesting guy. And uh, he said, yeah, you can come in. So I did, and that lasted three months. I did five days a week. 40 hours a week in the jail. And uh, that was done. And then 10 years later, he called and said, we're closing the oldest jail in California. 
finally, do you want to document the, the last three months? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that would be very nice. I'd be happy to do that. And he said, fine. So I went down and uh, every every I went down three days a week on the weekends and I would hand them my driver's license and they would give me a set of keys to the jail. And I would spend eight hours in the jail and take pictures and do interviews. Mm-hmm. And then when that was done, I went to the sheriff and I said, yeah, I've done. He said, great. Uh, and I said, but there's one more thing I'd like to do. And I'm wondering if you'll let me do it. And he said, what's that? And I said, I, people like to talk to me. I would like to do a project called Take a Picture, Tell a Story. And he said, okay, where and how long would you want to do this for? And San Francisco had four facilities at that point. I said, I'd like to do it wherever I want for as long as I want. <laughs> it's bold. <laughs> <laughs> and I have already told all these people that they have no editorial control whatsoever. Mm. But if they let me in, as long as they let me shoot it, then that's that's where their editorial begins and ends mm-hmm. at that point. So he said, oh, I said, I got to think about that. So I said, okay. And he called me the next day and said, yeah, I think we can do that. Amazing. So 13 and a half years later and three sheriffs, I was... I was, my pass was revoked. <laughs> wow, but it was done by then. Um, no, it wasn't done. Well. <laughs> I still would be in there doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you probably would. So where, this habit of, um, or this this kind of interest you have in gathering, you know, audio, that, that goes right back to the beginning, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that something that you did right at the beginning? Um when you did this, well, as you say, kind of you're working on labor-related uh, topics. I think you did a thing about the coal mining uh, region, and you were recording audio even back then, weren't you? I tried. Mm. I uh, I went to Harlan, and well, I went I went to West Virginia first, and I was taking pictures. Nobody knew what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I got introduced to a guy, a retired miner who had been at one of the, I think the Battle of Blair Mountain or something. And I thought, I got to record him. And I had a tape recorder. And I was just crap at it. I mean, staggeringly bad. And I recorded it, and it wasn't very good. And I put away the recorder and just took pictures. Right. And uh, But I was always interested I've always thought of stories that are more text-based than visual, mm. but I can't write or discern that very well. But that's what was seemed to be always the way it was, and uh, and so I like I like the interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably goes back to I, there was a uh, remember Camera Magazine, mm-hmm. yeah, was a British man. They ran a, a series of photos on America by a Japanese photographer with the words from uh, the song from Simon and Garfunkel. And I thought, I was just stunned at how well that worked as a package. Mm. So um, at some point, I just thought, well, 
with the, when I finished the criminal justice stuff, uh, the first the first batch, the, the homicide cops, etc. I had no text, no writer, and I thought I got to have some text because this thing is 280 images in length, which is way too much. Mm. And so I hit upon this idea. I, I would collect 50 photos from all, a selection from all of it, put it in a box, get a tape recorder. And I started calling up people who I still knew. So it would be lawyers uh, on both sides of the dock, uh, dock uh, on both sides of the fence, the judge, people who worked in the court, cops, detectives, and the, and the defense attorneys would give me uh, defendants and the uh, sheriff let me back into the jail to interview people who were locked up. And I would show them the photos and I'd just tell them, tell me a story. Mm-hmm. What do you see here? Don't tell me about the photo. Tell me what it reminds you of. What, tell me right. a story about it. And uh, I had 32 pages of text and uh, 90 photos. Mm-hmm. And I thought the text was much better than the phones. Yeah. Still do. Well, it sort of brings up the interesting and the sort of evergreen question or, or idea of things that photography is not good at. And perhaps your interest was in compensating for those kind of shortcomings in a way that the me- inherent to the medium. You know, I think as, as people say, it's, you know, it's good at, it's good at showing things, but not very good at explaining them, I suppose yeah. is the way you might put it so you in the course of this amazing kind of undertaking you interviewed lots and lots of inmates can you share some of the stories or maybe kind of are there certain people who kind of stick with you in a way or you know certain stories that that resonated at the time or that you you found particularly poignant i mean there are a few that stick in my mind uh there was a a fellow who was in jail on um, something related to alcohol. Not sure what, but his story, he had two stories. One, he was a, uh, a refugee from El Salvador, from the, from the wars. And he had one story about uh, he and his wife had had a baby and his wife was exhausted. So he was taking care of the baby. And uh, he was on the couch with the baby on his chest and the baby fell asleep and then he fell asleep. And when he woke up, the baby was dead Mm. uh, because he had squeezed the baby and the baby couldn't breathe. Oh, my God. Uh, And then he told me about as a kid and during the during the wars, having to go get water and you walk down. You walk down the road and it would be lined with heads on sticks. There was a fellow who uh, I interviewed once, and the story was wasn't much. And then one day I saw him in the, I saw him in the recreation area, and I said, uh, I said, would you, do you want to do it again? And he said, oh, Yeah, I'd like to do it again. What do you want to talk about? And he had this scar that ran from like ear to ear. Mm. And I said, well, tell me about your scars. You know, I mean, usually I would say, just tell me a story, but sometimes I was interested in everything. 
Just everything, except what they did. I was never interested in what they did. Right, what they were in there for, yeah. Yeah, that just didn't interest me that much. So uh, he told me about his scars, and he had been he had three from knife wounds. And, uh, I mean, it's up on the site, and you can listen to it, but he's basically at the end, the last one was about the scar on his throat, and uh, he said, uh, and that's my story, and next time you'll, you'll have to interview the other guy for his story. <laughs> so, yeah. And then there was one guy who told me a story about some stories I had, I ended up having to pull. Either people had second thoughts or their lawyers had multiple thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one guy told me a story about drugs being smuggled into the prison. So there, in the States, you have prisons and jails. Uh, jails are, are remand. So... Uh, He'd been in, a guy, guy was in prison and his fellow inmates found out he was having a conjugal visit with his girlfriend. So they said to him, we need you to bring in some drugs. And uh, your girlfriend should bring in some drugs. And so he said, well, you know, and they said, well, there's really not a lot of choice in this. So his girlfriend brought in the drugs and... Uh, they had the conjugal visit, and he did what you do with the drugs. You kind of swallow them and then wait for nature to take its course. And so he came back out, and they came to him and said, well. And he said, not yet. And then the next day, and he said, not yet. And the next day, and they, he said, not yet. So the fourth day, they were tired of waiting. They thought he had, like, mm. you know. Taken him for himself. And so this guy's telling me this story, and he says, you know, they had to go through 25 feet of intestine before they found it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you know, but then there was, there was a guy that told me about, <coughs> I watched him playing chess. And I asked him, I said, do you like chess? He says, well, it's sort of interesting. And I said, but why do you play it all the time? And he said, because it's a survival technique. You can tell who a person is by the way they play a game, especially a game like chess. <clears throat> I do not care whether I win or lose. This is a new person. I need to know where they fit in and how they operate. So we play a game of chess. Hmm. And I can see, do they bluff? Do they think? Is there a lot of bravado? Are they willing to sacrifice? Uh, and it allows me to navigate. But like, so after all that, like, I mean, having having spoken to so many of these people firsthand, I'm just interested in your sort of take on where the sort of failings of the system are in terms of, you know, we all know that prison is is a is a very sort of you know, flawed mechanism. Um, no one's, again, no one's come up with a better solution or a, be a better idea so far to what to do with people who commit crimes. I don't, you know, I think we, no one's going to suggest that, that people shouldn't be in some way punished for committing crimes. But 
where are the you know the prison population in the United States? I know is is extremely high, and I, I presume there's a lot of recidivism, and you know people aren't necessarily being being reformed so what's the point you know it's, it's the old question of you know is this just about punishment or is this about trying to um you know prepare people for their re-entry into um into society and uh, we go back to the sort of homelessness thing because i presume a lot of prisoners especially if they've done a lot of time you know they come back into society and maybe they struggle and maybe they end up homeless as well is that something that you've sort of seen happen all the time but uh, the first part of your question is is a minefield. Yeah, I especially now, especially now, uh, and is more complicated than slogans. The U.S. has a lot of prisoners, a lot of people in the system, because we've criminalized so many minor things. So, and it and it varies from state to state, or even county to county. So if, for instance, you get arrested for drugs in San Francisco, you may not even go to jail. You'll be put on diversion of some sort. If you get arrested for drugs for the same thing in Kern County, which is down around Bakersfield, you might go to jail for 10 years, mm. except for the overcrowding. They have, they have to limit the number of people by court order. So I, I'm not going to get in, into that. I mean... I think that it is not a good system. I think there are better systems. I think there are ways. I think we need a much broader spectrum approach. I think we need to be, instead of vindictive, we need to be supportive. You need jobs. You need people to have hope. You need people to, you need, society needs to somehow let people know that they are valued members of the society, uh, regardless of their position. There was a woman I photographed both in the jail and on the street. Not, not much on the street, but honest. She'd been in the jail 90 times the last time I saw her. <coughs> Almost always drugs. She would get released. Because of the way the system worked, she would be released between 11 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning. She had no real place to go, and there were no services. So she would be out the door. She would be clean at that point. She had to find some place to sleep, and there was nothing open. So she would go where she knew there were friends and support, because you don't want to be, especially a woman, you don't want to be a woman all by yourself on the street mm. at that time. So she would walk out of the jail, turn right at the door, turn right at the first street, and walk into the Tenderloin, which is still a very poor and rough area. And she would get immediately be able to get drugs and some and be able to sleep amongst a group so she that wouldn't harm her. She had no chance, absolutely no chance of escaping. Yeah, vicious cycle as they... Because nobody met her at the door. She was released at a time of day when there was no services. Nobody met her at the door, and there was no halfway position for her. And in terms of housing, the system has changed a little bit now, but for a long time, 
You could not get housing unless you were clean. So, because, you know, you didn't deserve it. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way the system works in a state. There's a lot of this Puritan kind of thing about, you know, you have to deserve what you get. In fact, there's a, you know, mansion in, in the, in the Congress is all about this. He, he's, he's holding up money for, for mothers and children because he's saying they're going to be given money for doing nothing and they don't deserve it. They need to prove that they deserve our largesse. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, that's, you know, it's difficult to get clean on the street. Yeah, but or to do anything on the street, frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and but then not not everyone who's out there on Division Street without a home is has got necessarily got a drug problem. I mean, obviously that is going to be something that's that's very common, but um, that you know doesn't apply to everybody. Um, and some of them have been have been homeless very very long term. I was thinking about because I'm making your we're working on your website, your new website as we speak. Yes. I was thinking about Ashanti. He's 44 years of age or something, been on the street most of his life. What's his story? I mean, what happens to someone like him or you know, what's the chance of someone like him ending up, you know, with a roof over his head? Uh, currently? Yeah. Zero. Zero. Right. <laughs> because there are no, there are no spaces. Mm-hmm. Between the pandemic and lack of short-term housing, whether it's shelter or, or SROs, his chances are zero. You have to be involved. Oh, God, this is like getting into the weeds. <laughs> uh, basically, the way it works is that you have people on the street. So used to be that you could you could go to a shelter and get, uh, get in if you got there at the right time or get on a waiting list. Or you could go to a different social agency and maybe and, and, and get on a list to get into a, a SRO single room occupancy hotel or maybe a sh- or maybe an apartment. But that's all changed. So now because the city doesn't have anything and because the pandemic hit, they had to close the shelters because that kind of was spreading mm. the virus. And they didn't want people signing up for appointments for stuff because there was nothing to give them. So the only way you could get get shelter, the city does what they what folks like me call sweeps. They call encampment resolution. <laughs> nice, yeah, nice terminology. <laughs> Which is basically they come with a crusher truck and some cops and some city workers and then some homeless outreach folks who come a little bit later. So it's they announce that they're going to come at about 70 out, 72 hours before. And then they come with the trucks and they say to you, you need to move. We told you so. You need to move. And so if you don't move, we're going to take your stuff. I mean, this is really a kind of a gross generalization of the way it works. But that's essentially the way it works. So that, that, and then they're supposed to be followed by the outreach people who will say, before they all their stuff is taken, will say, we have, you know, 20 spots, which they never do, but we have shelter spots, we have some uh, 
uh, SIP housing, which is the hotels mm. uh, that came in during COVID. And maybe we have an SRO and it's all short term, but we have this stuff. Would you like to go? And then people who say yes, they, if they're in the first group, they, and they, the first, it's first come, first serve, so they get it. And then the city comes in and takes away, the, takes everything else. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is they come in at 7 or 7.30 in the morning. They start clearing everybody. The, the outreach people come at 8, but they don't know what, they don't know how many spaces they have till 9.30. Mm-hmm. So by 9.30, everybody's been cleared. And then at 9.30, the, the outreach person gets a, a text message that says we have three spaces. Yeah. Well, that's fine because there's no longer anybody around. Or if there are around, you know, there's, they're not, some of them may take it. And then you have the other aspect of this, which is that if you, you don't want to go into a shelter because they're not necessarily safe, mm. either physically or from COVID. They have staggering numbers of rules. You can't bring friends. You can't bring. You, you can't bring a spouse. You can't bring your dog. You can't bring your belongings. There are. You have to be in at eight and out by seven. Uh, you don't get a key. You have to sign in and out. Looks a lot like jail. Yeah, yeah. You can see why people and, prefer to be on the street. At least you got some. That is exactly what happens. People yeah. say, "I'm not going to move there." either a shelter or, or a navigation center, which is kind of a, a more expansive shelter or a safe tent site, which they've started up because, or even a, even an apartment because there are all these rules. I can't, you won't give me a key. I can't have stuff. You, I, you know, I can't bring anybody over. Uh, why would I do that? Mm. You know, only to be thrown out. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the sort of overriding point that, that kind of strikes me is that all of these so-called solutions are short term. So ultimately, they're all going to get kicked back onto the street eventually anyway. So it's like it's just. And a, then they're going to and they're going to be back on the street. But without any without, their stuff. without their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So they have oh. to get stuff again. They have to start over. Have you. Th- and including starting over with all the paperwork, which. Yeah. Takes a long time. Do, do you find it sort of kind of relentlessly depressing to to be working on this for, for a long period of time or are you quite good at sort of compartmentalizing those things i was always good at uh i don't know if i compartmentalized it but i was always good at while i was doing it at least i'd be okay mm. and i you know i would come home and i would be okay and occasionally i would dreams would kind of sit in the last year and a half has been very difficult. It's been very difficult for everybody. Mm. Uh, it's been difficult for me. It's been difficult for the outreach people I, I work with on occasion or more than occasion now. Uh, but, and I stopped for a while, but I didn't stop because I couldn't deal with the people on the street. I stopped because I couldn't deal with the people on the internet. All right. What's going on in, on the internet then? Is there a lot of chatter? Oh come on! <laughs> well, no, I know. Ja- I know. On a I'm not talking about. I am not talking about chatter about all the awful homeless people. Right. I'm talking about the chatter about the awful people 
that photograph. Ah, okay. And you know that that I mean, I my whole life I've dealt with the business of power relationships, mm. and you know whether it was because of the position I was in, or like in the unions where the entire membership would be people of color, women, people of color, and the entire leadership are old white men. You know, that's just not the way it should be. Mm. But I just don't believe in hard and fast rules for the most part. You know, I mean, I figured out very early on that I wanted to cover aspects of whatever story it was in ways which were a little off the main line. You know, so, for instance, with homeless, in the book, there's, I think there's three photos that involve drugs. Mm. It's just not a big deal. Everybody knows drugs are all there. there. You know, uh, that drugs, there are humongous downsides to drugs. But that's really not, that's the story everybody does, and I just was not particularly interested in it, nor am I yet interested in it. However, if I want to be credible, I can't produce a piece of work that says, that essentially says it doesn't exist. Mm. Because who's going to believe it? Mm. I mean, especially San Francisco. I have a container of like 10, 12 needles that I went out one day and collected in half an hour. Mm. It was supposed to be, I was thinking about the exhibit and I was going to like hang the, these used needles from threads. Mm-mm. You know, drugs, are, they're there. I mean, any kind of drug you want to think about. But is it is it a hugely important aspect of the issue of homeless? No, I don't believe that. I don't believe there was an article recently in the Atlantic where the guy was, the guy's premise was, the, the huge expansion of the homeless community is all down to this new synthetic uh, meth or crack. I don't remember which one. And that because it became so cheap and so prevalent and because it, it, it was like listening, <laughs> it's probably still to you. You know, Reefer Madness, the movie Reefer Madness? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was like reading Reefer Madness about meth. Right. right. So, and people aren't on the street because his this guy's contention was that that on on natural meth, uh, it, you're pretty mellow. You know, you're not violent. You don't. You're not manic. I have no idea. But on this synthetic one, it makes you nuts. You know it. And one of the things that happens and. This is a quote, not a quote, but paraphrasing the article. He says that one of the things that happened, one of the things that you see on the street now around homeless, many homeless encampments are huge collections of bikes. And he says the reason you see it is because this synthetic meth makes people want to want to fiddle with bicycles. <laughs> right. And That's I just thought. Very specific and weird. Yeah. I just thought. You obviously haven't talked to anybody. It's mm. a business. These things, this is their stock. Mm. And people, there are, there are groups of people on the 
homeless, there are groups of homeless folks that this is how they make money. They repair bicycles. I don't, I'm not, you know, I mean, they, they get the parts from someplace. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah. not sort of uh, <laughs> we don't, examine we don't. where or... Exactly. But, you know, but, you do what you fucking can, don't you, in that situation, I suppose. Yes, and, and um, you know, the other, the old, the old sort of, uh, you know, cliche really is that, yes, of course, drugs are the main part of it. And may, maybe, you know, pe- people with serious drug habits, you know, end up slipping through the cracks and, and it could certainly, you know, it can destroy your your life and, and make you homeless but then at the same time you know if i was homeless i'd take drugs you know why, why wouldn't you you know well how are you going to get through the fucking day so i mean well, you know it's it's like you say i mean you had to have a, a kind of visual reference to it in the book but you didn't want to make too much of it so that was you, you know you had to kind of find a sort of sweet spot there in a way where it wasn't i mean my you know, job i see my job as kind of trying to present, and this was true of the jail as well, trying to present folks that society would rather not see at all Mm. and think are disposable. To kind of say, look, uh, they have the same concerns, the same issues that we have, that everybody has. They're just in a different circumstance. But I also wanted to say that, that, um, there are things that you have to admire about folks who are in the jail or, or in that lifestyle or homeless that most people, most housed or quote unquote law abiding folks don't think about. So I look at the folks at the, in the, in the jail and it's actually, I'm looking at the same thing for both communities. I look at them and I haven't traveled a huge amount, more than many people, but not a huge amount. But I've been in a lot of different cultures and societies. And growing up in L.A., it was just like you in London. There's a lot of different cultures. All those cultures are different. And except for the the quote-unquote mainstream culture, which is us, us white guys, um, People who are in those cultures have to be, have to navigate seamlessly between those. There are different rules in each of those, each of those cultures, different languages, different, I mean, you can get down to like different foods and stuff, but, but the operating rules of how to survive in any particular culture are different. And I would never survive on the street. I would never survive in the jail. Because I don't know the rules well enough, and I'd probably die before I learned. Hmm. But the folks in the jail, they see. So, so one of the reasons. I mean, I'm jumping around. And I'm sorry, but no, that's right. One of the reasons that I don't have a lot of fear when I'm walking around is that, in spite of what everybody, everybody, fear is a huge aspect in the way homeless are dealt with. I don't have that fear. Because I'm not in that culture. Mm. So I treat them with respect and I'm polite. And I kind of know when to back off. But on the other hand, they're not going to treat, they're going to treat me within the culture I'm in. Because that's also their culture. 
I'm the outsider coming in. Mm. I don't know if this is making any sense, but basically if there's a dispute in their culture, that dispute could easily escalate into a fight. If the same dispute is between them and me, it isn't going to. Yeah. Because that's not the way the culture we live in deals with disputes at that level. And so I don't, you know, so, so I mean, what, because of that period where I wasn't going out, I kind of lost skills a little bit. (laughs) So I went down, I was on the street and there was this, there there was these folks and I thought I'll ask them. And the woman said she didn't want to do it. You know, you're just taking it. You're just this fucking white guy, you know, and you're taking advantage of us. And I thought, well, this is me. You know, I've been out here for five years. You all know me. And I started talking to her. And finally, she looked at me and she said, I'm doing you a favor. I'm telling you, to go away. You have to understand, I'm doing you a favor. And it finally clicked, you know, that she she was, in fact, doing me a favor. Mm. You know, that if somebody else, if some other homeless person had come up and been in that same position, it wouldn't have ended with her saying, you know, go away. It would have ended with something else. Mm. Because those are the rules of engagement for them. And there's actually somebody in the book who talks about it. You know, they don't, they have a dispute. They don't. First of all, they're not going to call the cops because the cops are going to come. And the first thing the cops are going to say, oh, you have warrants. We're going to take you to jail. Yeah. And the issue won't be, won't be set up. But the cops also won't just come. So they settle the disputes themselves mm. because that's the way it is. And the same is true within, within, the, within the jails and the prisons and on the street. And I wanted people, but the issues are the same. I mean, it isn't like it isn't like nobody has issues of payment, you know, or private property. You know, the, so like the, this tent is my property. This is my home. You just you don't just come in. Mm. You know, you kind of knock. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, the, I mean? the sort of rules of society uh, remain intact in a weird way. Absolutely, and and we and, and my job is to kind of like highlight that. I don't want people to forget that. It's easy, you know, it's easy just to only think about they committed crimes or they're on drugs, and therefore, you know, uh, it does feel like for you, it's it kind of is partly about you know giving these people. A voice, in a sense, and and even it's only in a small way. You know, they are having an opportunity to, as you've sort of already alluded to, you know, to 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 say, you know, I exist and I I am a person, and you know, I I need to be heard. Well, they and do I, it much better than I ever would. Yeah, ever could need to be recognised. I mean, you know, it's they're you know they 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 too they're very. Clear, and I don't ask. I don't ask a lot. I didn't in the jail, and I and I don't on the street. I have a series of questions on the street. I ask. They're all very open ended, mm. and you know, people say what they got to say. Mm. Generally speaking, it's, it's I don't edit much. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, um, when we finally finish your new website, people can go and um, have a look and see see all this stuff. It's all going to be up there. The the the, the take a picture, tell a story stuff, which actually is already uh, still up there in its own its old um, form or its existing form, which is a blog type website, which is called Take a Picture, Tell a Story. But we're gonna we're gonna move all that over onto your main um, website, and then everything will be under the same roof, as it were. But there's there's examples of 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 some of the characters that you've um, photographed from Division Street. And, um, of course the book, you know, will have the whole, the whole set as it were, or, you know, it will be well, the edited version. Obviously you can't possibly include everything. So I'm sure you've had a, a challenge there as, as one always does with a, with a book. And I'm sure you've been, um, ably, uh, assisted by Dari, uh, Lewis, the very experienced, uh, Dari. Um, how's that process been? Incredible. Right. Actually, I, I, you know, I was just, Completely blown away. Mm. I didn't think that, uh, you know, I made a, I proposed, I made a list of the publishers I wanted, I was interested in. He was one of them. Uh, it was just like the jail, you know. I contacted, I sent off submissions, I contacted people, and for the most part, nobody followed through, or I got no responses. Mm. Uh, and then um, Neil Burgess, who's used to be my agent, mm. uh, said he would contact Dow. And he did. And Dow, said, I'll take a look. So I sent them this proposal. And I had heard, I mean, I've never done a book. I've only talked to a few people that have. And it's always been, do not submit something that's pre-designed, you know, Kind of keep it, yeah. Let them, but uh, you know, you don't want to tell the book publisher what 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 you're going to do, right? Yeah, they want to. And then, uh, and then, a friend of mine had done a book on Vietnam, and he and I had thought this is the perfect cover photo. And even though he was paying for the book, the publisher said that's not going to be the the cover photo. And if you can't live with that, you can take your money and go away. Right. So I thought, you know, here it comes, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had, but in that interim of trying to find somebody, I had designed, designed is not the proper word here because I'm not good. I'm, I have no idea how to do it. I had put a book together and I had uh, put all the text in and uh, sequenced it and kind of had it the way I wanted and um, had a, a possible cover idea and <laughs> sent it off to him. And he said, Oh, I'm so glad that you sent it to me because I can now really take a look and see your idea of narrative. Hmm. And I thought, great. You know, and I waited and waited. And finally he sent back a note and he said, he said, uh, it's really almost unreadable, the text. And I said, yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> so the next thing I know, he sends me back like a PDF and he's cleaned it up in terms of the text. It's now all very readable, but he didn't change anything. All right. Except for, I think, one or two sequences. I was stunned. And he gave me credit, credit at the back for co design. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice, it's generous, yeah. 
And then he said, and he had a, and then he had a proposed cover, mm. which I really was not too hot on. So I put together six other cover ideas and submitted those. And he said, I really like this one, and that's the one you're going with. That's that used. Yeah. So I, I keep waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> right. The shoe right. to drop. Yeah, yeah. That, that I'm going to say, ah, okay, here it is. <laughs> Well, no, I don't think it. Hopefully, it won't. I think. I think. I don't, well, at this stage, it, yeah. it, the only thing left is to look at the final PDF Absolutely. before we hit the press. Absolutely. So, and I'm constantly worrying about. I don't know how to make a print file. Mm. I know how to make a file that I print on my Epson. Right. But you know, so I keep asking him. You know, it's this. Yeah, Is but he's gonna work. He'll he's, he must have done it. He's done it like a thousand times. So I presume I know. You know, he'll he'll be the man to uh, tell I'm you. I'm sure he just thinks this guy is. <laughs> Why did I get saddled with this? Guy? No, they're no, not at all. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it. So it comes out at the beginning of 2022, and I think yeah, February, March, depending on where you are. And um, Bob, so thanks so much for for telling me about. It. We were all over the place with that, and I, I don't I don't mind that at all when it's like that. I like um, I like that, and I, I'm sure the listeners will get a lot of it. We, we talked for an hour and a half, so it's just gone so quick. I feel like um, in a way we've sort of barely scratched the surface, but. You know, you, you you've been doing it a while, and um, there's there's a lot of material that we could have we could have talked about. But I I think it was uh, it was really interesting to to hear from you. And thanks so much. I want to get onto the old uh, bonus questions for for the subscribers. So I think we should uh, we should get on and do that. But thank you so much. Well, thank you.